This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. So we've been in a study on the biblical concept of missions, entitled Missions, God's Glory in All Nations. Um, And today we're going to look at Lesson 3, which asks the question, is Christ the only way to God? Um, now today it's a little bit interesting because we have, um, we're bringing two things together. We've got the college and career class and we've got the live stream. And um, so those of you on live stream had the second part of lesson two last week. Those of you in the college and career class had the first part of lesson three, which I want to be clear is not Brother Hagberg's fault that, we're, that they're different, okay? Um, it's just the schedule's been weird this quarter. Uh, we've had some unexpected um, interruptions that have all been good. Um, so what we're going to do this morning, for those of you in the College of Career class, you got the first part of Lesson 3. We're going to move quickly through that material. Just make sure that you, um, you're able to fill those blanks in. Those of you on live stream have that foundation. And then we'll, we'll dig in with more detail in the second half of the lesson. Uh, so... We're going to, well, up to this point in this study, we've talked about the foundation of missions, all right? And we've tried to answer the question, why do we do missions, all right? Brief answer, why do we do missions? As we've studied through this, as we've considered this, this is what the first two weeks were on. Why do we do missions? What's the purpose of missions, Christian? So that's a definition of missions. But what's the purpose of missions? Why, why are we doing it? Addison. To bring glory to God. To bring glory to God. All right. Primarily, it's to bring glory to God. Um, and, of course, the method, God's, God has chosen that missions would be um, a major, if not the major, way to bring him glory in this world. Um, as we reach people with the gospel as we point them to Christ, as they become worshipers of God like we are, uh, that's God's goal. That's, that's what we're trying to accomplish in missions. So that's why we support missionaries. That's why we encourage people to go to the mission field. Um, that's why we have a missions conference every year, uh, because of God's glory. We want God to be glorified in all the world. And that, that's what the, the foundation of this study, and that's why it's called Missions, God's Glory in All Nations. Uh, We've also looked at the biblical theology of missions. Uh, Today, we want to give part of the answer to the question, what makes missions urgent? Why is this urgent? Why is it important? Why is it, right now, we need to talk about missions? Right now, we need to be involved in missions. Um, What makes it urgent? Um, If Christ is the only way to God, it lends an urgency to missions that would otherwise not be there. And I think we'll see that as we as we consider this question today. All right, so first of all, the Christian claim of exclusivity. A little bit of a mouthful there. Um, You have a blank there. If you haven't filled it in, the Christian claim of exclusivity, and you've got the spelling up there on the screen. Uh, That's not a word we use a lot. So what is the Christian claim of exclusivity? Well, it is that only those who repent from their sin and trust in Christ as their substitute will be saved. Basically, Christianity's right, everyone else is wrong. That's what the Christian claim of exclusivity is saying. It's saying only Christ, all right? John 14, 6, 
Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's the idea of the Christian claim of exclusivity, all right? Only one way, only through Christ. It's not Christianity's a good way to, get, to come to God, but then there are other ways to come to God, too. Um, no, there's, it's only through Christ. That's the idea of the Christian claim of exclusivity. We talk about that a lot. We're quick to go to John 14, 6, and rightfully so. Um, so that's a, a biblical concept. And along with that, there come several assurances. All right. First of all, um, another your, your second point there, Christians believe that all men have a grave problem. They are under God's judgment of death because of their sins. So all men are under the judgment of death because of sin. Um, did you use the Brian illustration, the guy on dialysis last week? Okay, all right. So you've been introduced, those of you in the college and career class, to Brian. Is that ringing a bell for anyone? Okay, all right. So his name is Brian, in case you didn't know. He's not actually a real person, but he still has a name. All right, so let's consider the, the illustration of Brian, okay? A fictional guy born without kidneys. And so because of that, he, he needs regular dialysis treatments, okay? Um, he can't continue to live because his kidneys don't function, he's got to have the dialysis treatments in order to continue to live. Um, if you sent Brian to an exercise therapist, and the exercise therapist said, here's your workout regimen, you do all these things, you're going to be fine. Forget about dialysis, do these exercises, you're good to go. How's that going to work out? Not good, all right? Okay. In case there's a question, that would not work out well. You can't replace dialysis with exercise. What if you sent him to a psychologist, and the psychologist worked with him and said, here's your problem, it's in your mind. You, you need to tell yourself that you are well. You are, you're identifying as a sick person, and that's come to drag you down. You need to start thinking of yourself as well. Positive thoughts, positive feelings about yourself, and then you'll be okay, Brian. How's it going to work out? Not well, okay? So the, the issue for Brian is he doesn't have kidneys. He's objectively sick. There is an objective problem. There has to be an objective solution. And right now, the medical treatment is dialysis. That's his option, okay? An illustration of the, the objective issue of sin, all right? objectively, we are all sinners. And so you can't say, you know, some of us look at it this way, we're going to go in for this treatment for our sin. Others of us, you know, we're going to go to the exercise therapist. We're going we're to go about taking care of our sin in a different way. And then this other person prefers the psychology approach, and they're going to go to the, the psychologist to get their sin taken care of. Um, it's an objective problem. Romans 3.10 and 10 through 12 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. All right? Not open for interpretation. It's clear. Sin problem. Death because of sin. Um, so then, we're all sinners facing eternal punishment for our sin. So how are people saved? That's your third point. So how are people saved? All right. 
Salvation can be obtained only through Christ. And of course, again, this is all review, both because you've already looked at it in this study, but also for anyone listening, I think these are things we understand, things that we accept from Scripture. We've got to be clear on, on what we're talking about. Uh, the Bible makes it clear there's no other source of forgiveness or way to salvation than through Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 21-22 says, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Um, sin came into the human race through one man. Sin is taken care of through one man, the God-man Christ. Um, and Christ as God, of course, is uniquely qualified. Only he could pay the debt owed to God. Only Christ. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. So Christ is the only way. But then we ask the question, but do you actually have to hear the gospel? That's where it starts to get a little bit more where you get some argument about this. Okay, The Bible's super clear. It's only, salvation is only through Christ. But then you ask the question, do you actually have to hear the gospel? And at first you say, how do you ask that question when we've already seen that it's only through Christ? Um, well, put it this way. Can people be saved through Christ without realizing it is Christ who saves them? That's your fourth point. That's the question we're asking. Can people be saved through Christ? Okay, because Christ died, their sins can be forgiven. But can that happen if, even if they don't realize that it's Christ who's saving them? All right? And you, it, it, it sounds like a little bit of semantics at first, but um, I don't know if you are Chronicles of Narnia fans. If not, I apologize to you. But uh, in C.S. Lewis's allegory, The Last Battle, um, which is a picture of end times. Um, if you're, I'm sure you're probably familiar at least with the idea. It's a series of books intended for children, but it's allegories of different spiritual truths. Okay, So in that end, one about the end times, the last battle, we meet Emeth. He is a Carlamine officer, and the Carlamines are the enemies of the Narnians. They're battling to destroy them. All right, a picture of end times, the battle between... Satan and his armies, and God and his armies. And uh, so they're battling together, but Emeth is a faithful Carmeline soldier, and he's a devout worshiper of the Carlemine god Tash. All right? The Darnians end up, of course, in the end, they defeat the Carlemines, and are then ushered into Aslan's country, which is a picture of heaven. We're shocked then to find Emeth in Aslan's country. When asked about his presence there, he recounts his own surprise and a conversation that he had with Aslan. And he says, But I said, Alas, Lord, I am no son of thine, but the servant of Tash. He answered, and this is Aslan, who's supposed to be a picture of Christ, Child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account as service done to me. So basically, in this story, Emeth is a genuine, he, he's genuine in his worship, um, and he worshipped out of a good heart. He's worshipping a false god, but he was worshipping out of a genuine heart. And so, 
Aslan, the picture of Christ, accepts that worship as though it was directed to him, even though it was directed to a false god. Elsewhere in his writing, C.S. Lewis said, We know that no man can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. So I hope you understand what the, what the difference here is, okay? What, what Lewis is saying, and just to be fair to him, he, he didn't come out that he's absolutely sure that somebody can be saved apart from knowing Christ, but it's a question he, wrote, he, he brought up in his writings. Um, I don't think that he was necessarily convinced one way or the other. But he's saying, basically, it's possible that somebody who's, who's genuine in their worship, they're trying to do the right thing, they don't necessarily have to actually know Christ as long as they're worshiping out of a good heart, God might accept them anyway. It's only through Christ that they're saved, but they don't necessarily have to know that they're being saved through Christ. So if a Muslim is worshiping Allah, but they're actually doing it in a way that's honoring to, to the true God, if they're following the teachings of, of, of Islam, but they're doing it out of a good heart, they're doing it genuinely, and they don't know any better, does God accept that? Can they be saved through Christ even if they don't know about Christ? That's the question that's being raised here. And it's an important question to answer because it has a lot to do with how we look at missions and how urgent the matter of missions is. Because it comes down to, what about those who've never heard? You know, to be honest with you, this is kind of an attractive idea. Because it, help, it helps us feel better if we kind of leave it open for debate when we think about those who've never heard of Christ. We say, well, maybe, you know, maybe all they know is they're false gods, but they're doing it out of the right heart, and, and God understands their ignorance, and God understands their situation, and so they can still be saved through the blood of Christ even if they don't ever hear of Christ. Um, it makes us feel better about it if we can accept that idea. But we have to get down to asking the question, what does Scripture say? Because that's where our answer comes. We don't just decide which, which side of this we're more comfortable with. Um, what does Scripture say? So we're going to be in Romans 10. I meant to have you turn there earlier. Um, Romans 10 teaches us about salvation, all right? And I want to read together Romans 10, and by together I mean I'll read and you, you read along in your own Bible, um, quietly. <laughs> Sorry, I, I need to be clear when I do that. Romans 10, 9 through 13, I'll read the verses if you follow along in your own Bible. The, words, the Word of God says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus... And shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right, so... 
who according to these verses is saved? What is involved in that? Can you help me here? All right, what is involved, according to these verses, what is involved in salvation? And I was able kind of to, to condense it down to three action words. Confession, okay? So one of them is confess. Uh, confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, verse 9. Verse 10 says confess with the mouth. Um, it talks about confession. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So what are they confessing with their mouth? Confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, okay? Um, what else is involved? What other action words do you see here? Yes. Believe, verse 9. Uh, it shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. And then also in verse 10, believe with the heart. Verse, 10, uh, verse 11, believeth on him. There, there's belief mentioned several times. But again, what is the belief being placed in? Well, verse 9 talks about the resurrection of Christ. Verse 11 talks about, it says, Whosoever believeth on him. So is there any ambiguity about who the faith is being placed in? No, it's, it's clearly in Christ. Um, and then one more. If you look, verse 13. Call, okay? Another action word used, used here. Call upon the name of the Lord. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Verse 12, it talks about all them that call upon him. So is there room for indefinite faith, a faith that is not clearly in Christ? In these verses, can you fit a general, if you're out there, God, I don't know who you are, but would you save me? Salvation. God may respond to a prayer like that in order to show somebody more about Christ, but there's no room for an indefinite faith to say, whoever can save me out there, I believe that, that God's made some way for me to be saved, for some way for me to know him, and, and I'm accepting that. It's very clear, it's very definite um, that this is in Christ. Romans 10, 14 to 15, going on in this passage, Paul makes it even clearer how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So he clearly says they will not call if they've not believed. And they will not believe if they have not heard. And here, to me, is where it gets clearer than it could possibly otherwise get. They will not hear without a preacher. There has to be a preacher. There has to be a proclaimer. There has to be a person sharing the message. He's saying, this does not happen. They don't call if they haven't believed. And they don't believe if they haven't heard. And they don't hear unless somebody is telling them. So this is clear. This is Calling on Christ for salvation cannot be done from a position of ignorance. You've got to know about Christ in order to be saved. 
Now, for some, there are certain passages that come to mind that seem to contradict that statement. And I want to take a look at a couple of those, um, just for us to think about this some more and, uh, and see if there are exceptions. Because if there are exceptions in Scripture, then that would seem to suggest there are exceptions today. Um, so what about Cornelius? Acts chapter 10. In that chapter, we meet a Roman centurion called, named Cornelius, and he is described in Acts 10:2 as a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. All right, so this sounds like a good guy, not who you'd expect a Roman centurion to be, um, but he fears God, he does good to other people, and he prays. Well, an angel appears to Cornelius in Acts 10, telling him to seek out the apostle Peter, who is staying at the time in Joppa. And the angel says in verse 6, He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. So Cornelius sends servants to go get Peter. And in the meantime, Peter has an unusual vision um, in which God tells him to eat meat that was, according to the Jewish laws, unclean. And Peter refuses to do that. This is against everything that he's learned. But God tells Peter what God hath cleansed, that call, call not thou common. All right? And Peter's confused at first. He doesn't really understand what this is about. And as he's thinking about it, as he's considering, what does this vision mean? These guys show up at his door, Cornelius' messengers. And they tell him about what's going on. You know, our, our master Cornelius, he wants to see you. He wants to talk with you. This angel came to him. And so Peter goes with them. And he meets Cornelius, and they talk with each other. They both recount their experiences, all right? They both had pretty unusual experiences. Peter has had this vision, this cloth let down with all these animals, and God's saying, eat of it. And Cornelius has had an angel come and talk to him. And so they talk to each other. They, they recount what's gone on here. And picking up in Acts 10.34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. That verse, it doesn't say anything requiring faith in Christ, right? You go to that verse, you read the story up to this point, and you look at this verse and what Peter says, was Cornelius saved? He sent for Peter, and Peter's just coming to confirm the fact that Cornelius is saved? Because Peter says, fearing God, working righteousness, you're accepted. So, was that enough? Cornelius didn't know about Jesus, but he was doing his best, right? He's fearing God, he's doing good to people, he's praying, he's doing his best. He, he seems to be a genuine worshiper. Well, if we stop with those two verses, it would seem so. It would seem that Cornelius is saved and that God has accepted this general worship in order for him to be saved. But if we continue, the truth becomes clearer because Peter goes on. He doesn't stop there. And we'll come back and try to understand what Peter was talking about in those verses. But um, jumping back in, let's, let's skip forward to verse 38. Peter is continuing to talk through these verses. Verse 38, he says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good 
and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Then, only after this clear declaration of the gospel, does the Holy Spirit, the seal of salvation, come on Peter's listeners. Now, they were ready. Their hearts were prepared for, this, for the gospel. They were ready to hear. They were ready to receive. But not until after this clear gospel, Jesus is introduced to them. And Peter goes into the fact that it's only through his name that you believe and you receive remission of sins. Only after that does the Holy Spirit come on them as a sign they've received Christ. And I believe as Peter preached, they received the truth in their hearts. And as he preached, they got saved. And then the Holy Spirit comes on them as a sign, yes, indeed, these Gentiles have been saved. To further clarify that, as Peter is retelling what happened in Acts 11, he, he's rejoicing in what happened with Cornelius. He's telling others about it in Acts 11. He says, verse 13, um, talking of Cornelius, he says, And he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood and said unto him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words, whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Peter is saying, when the angel appeared to Cornelius, the angel was saying, go to Peter, he's going to tell you how to get saved. So, what was Peter saying in verses 34 and 35? Well, what was the lesson for Peter in Acts 10? What was God teaching him? Beginning with that vision, going through all that happens, what is Peter, God teaching Peter? This was, a, this was a major milestone in the early church. Yes, Christian. That the new covenant was for both Jews and Gentiles. That this isn't just a Jewish thing. That's why God sent that vision where he sees this, this blanket let down on all these animals, and he says, no, 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 that's unclean. I can't have a part in that. That's unclean. He says, well, God says what, what God has called clean, you don't call it a common. You don't call it unclean. What did the Jews see the Gentiles as? Unclean. God says the gospel's for all of them. That's what Peter's saying. He comes to Cornelius and he says, now I perceive, now I understand that God is not a respecter of persons. If you fear God, if you work righteousness, if you are seeking after God, God is going to come after you. He, he's interested in saving the Gentiles too. He accepts Cornelius, even though Cornelius is a Gentile. Peter is not saying all it took was fear in God and righteousness. He's saying God is going to save those who, who come to him, regardless of where they come from. 
So that's what Peter's saying there. That's the lesson for Cornelius and, and the whole Jewish church. So far from teaching that you can be saved apart from faith in Christ, this story actually, um, I think, encourages us to consider the opposite. Because God could have used, God could have just said, Cornelius, he's a, he's a genuine guy. He, he's really seeking me. And so he's good to go. But instead, he sent an angel to go, so Cornelius would go get Peter, so Peter could come. It also reminds me how much God cares about involving people in his work of the gospel. There's got to be a preacher. Because think about it. God could have said, I'm going to send this angel. The angel's going to tell Cornelius, here's who Jesus is. Here's what he's done for you. Here's how to get saved. Do you think Cornelius would have gotten saved? Absolutely. He was ready. His heart was prepared. He was seeking after God. Instead, God sent a person. He sent Peter. Because God, that's how God is doing this. He uses a preacher. He uses somebody to proclaim the gospel. Um, so moving on. That's Cornelius. What about the unknown God in Acts 17? Um, this is a well-known episode in Paul's ministry. He stands on Mars Hill in Athens and begins his sermon this way. Uh, Acts 17, 22-23. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said... Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by, I beheld your devotions. And beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. So what was Paul saying? Uh, were these people worshiping the true God? I, I know you're unsure because it's, oh, what is he saying here? I, are they genuinely worshiping? What's going on here? Um, to be honest with you, I think, I, and I, I want to be careful about saying things like this, but I think Paul missed the mark with this message. Um, you see, there wasn't much of a, a response. As you read through the message, he was, I think, not as clear with the gospel as he should have been. And uh, ultimately, not much happened in Athens as a result of this. Um, what I'm afraid happened, and I think this happened a couple times in Paul's ministry, he, he got carried away trying to be clever. And he decided, this is a really clever way to start my message. And so he says it this way. Now, I'm not saying that he necessarily says anything here that's not true, um, but he could have potentially introduced confusion here that, that didn't need to happen. Um, and Paul's a warning to me. I have to be careful about trying to get too clever myself with how I share things because you get in trouble when you start doing that. Um, so what was he saying? Did these people just not know God's name, but their worship was still accepted by God? Well, he does clarify. He says in verses 29 through 31, We ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. He's saying this is not, we don't, worshiping idols, you're, you're missing the mark. This is not the way that God is. That's not who God is. Uh, and the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, 
whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. So he does introduce Christ. He does make it clear the ignorance is not an excuse where you say, you know, they're ignorant and so that's okay. Um, we could go into a, a rabbit trail talking about what he means when he says, and the times of this ignorance got winked at. We're not going to go there just because th that's, that would take a little while for us to go all the way through that. I encourage you to do some study and try to understand what that means. But, um, but he does say, regardless of what that means, he says, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Ignorance is not an excuse. God says everybody needs to repent. And he makes it clear because that this is through Christ. Christ is the judge. Christ is the one who rose. Christ is the one who can offer salvation. So Christ must be the object of conscious faith. Paul does not commend them and encourage them to continue with what they're doing. He calls for repentance, and he points them to Jesus. Uh, one other question or objection that's sometimes raised is, is there a present-day analogy to those who had faith in the Old Testament? This is another thing we could spend a while talking about. What, what was salvation like in the Old Testament? Okay, um, What about those who lived before Jesus? And uh, we could dive into that. We could spend a great deal of time considering the different positions and what people have to say about that. We don't have the space or the time for that in this study. If you do want to dig deeper into that, Pastor Radice spent three weeks considering that question during the Good News Bible Institute back at the beginning part of the year. And you can still go and listen to those messages on the podcast. Um, and uh, if you need help accessing that, just let me know. Uh, but there's, honestly, there's a lot that we don't know. We don't know how much they knew of Christ. Just reading what we have in the Old Testament doesn't give us a super clear picture of the Messiah. Um, I've studied through the Messiah in the Old Testament. And to be honest with you, just with the Old Testament, without the, the light that the person of Christ sheds on all those prophecies, it's really hard to come out with a clear picture of a biblical Messiah. It's certainly hard to see how all those things would be fulfilled in Christ. And it's wonderful then, with our clear view, to look back through Christ and see, wow, that was fulfilled. He was all of those things. And somehow in Christ, all of those prophecies came together and he fulfilled them perfectly in a way that I never would have been able to envision. But to be honest with you, if we think you just have the Old Testament and you're going to come to the conclusion of who Christ is and what he's going to do and I need salvation through him, I don't see how you get there. We don't understand, we don't know all that they had. Um, there were other prophets that God was using in that time. There were other people that were speaking uh, to the people from God. And so they might have had a clearer vision, a clearer image of all of that to be able to better understand the Christ who was coming than just what's in the Old Testament. They might have had other prophets who were, and we know there were other prophets, but they might have made that picture clearer and they might have understood better than we imagine. We just don't know. There are things that would suggest that they might have. 
um, thing, things that are said of Abraham in John 8, Moses in Hebrews 11, and I can give you those verses if you're interested, um, that would seem to suggest they might have been looking forward to a distinct Christ um, as we understand him. Of course, we know that God's Spirit was at work. Um, but in Luke 2, Simeon takes the baby Jesus in his arms and says, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. So whatever had informed Simeon, whether it was just God working in his heart, his Holy Spirit, Simeon understood at that point who Christ was and what he'd come to do, um, at least to a degree. So we don't know. We don't know how much they knew. We don't know how clear their vision looking forward was of Christ. We have the benefit of a super clear vision because of what Scripture gives us. We also know they were in the midst of God's special revelation. Uh, they lived in special times because God was continuing to share His Word. New revelation. New information new enlightenment about God and who he was. He was continuing to share that. There were prophets who were coming forward with new revelation from God, genuine new revelation from God. And so they were in the midst of that. They hadn't gotten all that we have. Now it's different. Um, so it's easy for us to be able to look at that and say, God was probably working uniquely Salvation probably looked a little different because they were still in the midst of getting all that revelation. They didn't know all that we know. They didn't have as clear a picture of what salvation means before the cross as we do after the cross and after all the letters and, and all the clarity we get from Scripture. So they were still in the middle of that. What we do know is, as Hebrew te Hebrews tells us, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Things are different now. They looked forward dimly, we look back clearly. So whatever it meant for them to be saved, we can now say with certainty that salvation today means conscious faith in Christ alone. So to those who would ask, can't people still be saved the way they were in the Old Testament? Whatever they would say exactly that way was, I would simply have to answer, things are different now. And the passages we've looked at, Romans 10, Acts 10, Acts 17, and many others, all clearly support that and point to the fact that conscious faith in Christ is necessary for salvation. So, I think it's clear, I think we've seen that it's clear from Scripture that this is true, but uh, then there comes the charge of narrowness. That's your fifth point. The charge of narrowness. Some say, that is a horrible doctrine. How can you believe that those who never hear will be punished forever? And when we talked about earlier, that's where another position on this can be attractive to us. Because we say, that's, that's really hard to say that, because then it 
seems like we don't have a heart at all. All these people in the jungle somewhere who've never heard about Jesus, where does that leave them? Well, is that unfair? Is it unjust? Think again of Brian, our dialysis guy. All right? He probably dislikes how things are. Thankfully, I've never had to experience dialysis, but I've heard that it's no fun. It's a pain. It's a drain on your life. It takes a lot of time. Um, and for someone who is missing both of their kidneys, they're going to be having to do it a lot. And it's, it's not going to be a fun thing. It's not going to be something that you would just be excited about. So our fictional Brian might dislike how things are, but he still has to cling to that dialysis as the only way. He can't just decide, I don't like this, and so I'm going to come up with my own way to do this. Well, unless he's some brilliant doctor who comes up with this new treatment that just rocks the world, um, he's stuck with dialysis. That's his one option. He may be saddened by the fact, you look back at history, somebody born with no kidneys, what's going to happen? They're going to die. There is no other option. They die. There's no treatment. Are there places in the world where people born without kidneys cannot get dialysis and they're going to die? Yes, there are. Does that mean that Brian says, this isn't fair, this isn't right, there are people in the world with no access to dialysis, I'm going to turn my back on that cure, or I'm going to pretend that people can get, saved, can get healthy, can get healed without that cure? You can't just change it because you don't like it. And that's the challenge with biblical, with some of these areas of theology. Um, we might be uncomfortable with it, but that doesn't mean we just get to decide we're going to change the way we look at it. And we're going to look at it a different way than Scripture. A man who encounters a chasm would be wrong to complain because there's only one bridge. And it's not where he wants it to be. So what would fair look like? What would just look like when it comes to salvation? You say, we're going to, make the, we're going to level the playing field and make sure that everything is just. How would God make it just for every human being on earth when it comes to salvation? If God was going to be just... we would all end up in hell. Now, that's not to say that God was not just in the way that he provides salvation, but you say, God's going to make it all fair, he's going to make it all even, then he can just send us all to eternity in hell. And I don't mean to, to downplay that, that would be completely fair, that would be completely just. Nothing wrong with that. I wish I had some brilliant answer to give to you, but I don't. Um, I'm simply led to passages like, uh, like Romans 9. It's a difficult passage in itself, but it says in Romans 9, verses 14 to 15, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Verse 20, he says, 
O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Or Isaiah 40, verses 13 and 14, Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or being his counselor hath taught him? With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment? And taught him knowledge? And showed to him the way of understanding? Can we say to God, You're not fair. You're not right. You're not looking at this the right way. You haven't thought through this. I have a better idea. In the end, we have to trust because God knows. And we have to rest in the fact that God is sovereign. God is just. God is loving. And we can and we must rest in those truths. So a hard doctrine, but we have to accept a biblical doctrine. So then that, that causes us to ask, what's the relationship to missions? That's your sixth point, the relationship to missions. And briefly, this is where the personal challenge really comes down with this, this doctrine. I trust we've seen clearly from the Bible that salvation only comes through conscious faith in the person of Jesus Christ. So how does that affect our view of missions? Well, there's two things, and these are the challenges I want uh, to leave you with this morning. The exclusivity of Christ gives urgency to the work of missions. And that's what we started by talking about, urgency. If those in the jungle who've never heard about Christ die and go to hell, what does that mean needs to happen? We need to go and tell them about Christ. There's an urgency there. Those of us who know Christ need to be serious about sharing him with others. And that leads right into the second thing, the second challenge. Remember the story of Cornelius, the centurion. And part of the wonder of what we considered is the fact that God is committing, committed to using people, to using us. To share the gospel. God could have used a variety of other methods. Much more simply, he could have used that angel. But instead, he used Peter. He's given us that privilege. So together, these thing, two things come together. People need to hear about Christ. God needs to be glorified in all the world. And if they're only, he's only glorified as they come to conscious faith in Christ... We've got to get out there and tell people about Christ. We've got to go to the unreached places with the gospel. And secondly, it really does need to be us. Because God has called us. He's chosen that in his perfect wisdom, the method of the gospel going out, the method of missions, is us. It's people. We are the preachers. Romans 10, 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your, your wisdom is perfect.
And Father, there are things in your word that are harder to talk about than others. And it's hard to consign the ignorant to everlasting punishment. But Father, we rest in your wisdom. And Lord, I pray that you would help our consideration of this truth this morning, instead of leading to anger or bitterness or um, resentment against you for your plan, instead we would be that much more committed to be a part of your plan, recognizing that they do need to hear about Christ. Somebody does need to go with a light to those very darkest places in the world. The unreached need your word. They need the gospel. And I pray that you'd help us all to be committed to do our part. And Father, I pray that you would help us all to recognize you have chosen us to be a part of the Great Commission work. We are your instruments. Uh, Lord, you use situations, you use circumstances uh, to bring people to the end of themselves, to cause them to see their need for a Savior, but Lord, you use people to share Christ. And I pray that you would help us to be faithful servants in that way. Use us in the lives of those around us. Lord, if you would, if you desire to, use us to go where the gospel has not been heard and preach there and share with others about Christ. Guide us in this matter. As we continue to consider the, the, this doctrine, this, this uh, truth of missions and your heart for missions, Lord, help us to have that same heart. Help us to be faithful to pray that you would send laborers into the harvest. In Jesus' name, amen. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.